0: By now, I hope you believe the same thing I do. That Vegas has become a stand-in for American idealism. An anything-goes palace in the desert, a capital for vice and self-indulgence. A place that invites its own stereotypes. Heck, it gives them a seat at the table. By the late 60s, this stereotype of Vegas had been all but cemented, and look no further than Hunter S. Thompson's drug-fueled literary romp, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, to see this on full display. The book is based on real events in Thompson's life. Thompson's character in the book and film is Raoul Duke. He's a journalist here to cover an ATV off-road race near Vegas. He brought along a friend, and what ensues is a wild, dangerous bender in Las Vegas. The 1998 film adaptation, starring Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro, is actually an accurate portrayal of the book.
1: We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold.
0: Remember a few episodes ago when we talked about the opening scene from the film Viva Las Vegas? It's like from the perspective of a bird or a hand glider going over the Strip. It's this slow shot, cutting back and forth from aerial to close-up of the lights of the Strip and Fremont Street. The cacophony of the catchy theme song hypes you up. It's telling you this is a party. It's not that with Thompson's Vegas. In the film, they look maudlin, almost seasick, as they're making it down Las Vegas Boulevard. The camera is flipped around to be facing them, like, you know, a dash cam. It's not steady, it's kind of surreal, like they're on acid. And you kind of feel like you are, too, watching it.
1: Let us taste this cool desert wind. Oh, yes, this is what It's 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 all about.
0: A red convertible drunkenly floats, almost as if in space, in the center of the screen. Tom Jones plays, and the marquees of the famous casinos whip by, the Stardust, the Flamingo, the Riviera, but it's almost like a dream. Duke says that he's there on the pretense of writing about the death of the American dream. There's this post-1960s counterculture cynicism he brings.
1: I was right in the middle of a fucking reptile zoo, and somebody was giving booze to these goddamn things won't be long now before they tear us to shreds.
0: While Thompson is portrayed throughout as the hero, the fulcrum for the journey, he is not alone. A 300-pound Samoan that goes by Dr. Gonzo is there at every turn, left to fill in the gaps like a sidekick. But turns out, the real-life Dr. Gonzo, he wasn't a sidekick. He wasn't even Samoan. He was a co-conspirator, a visionary himself, and a well-known Chicano activist of the name Oscar Acosta. In making his surreal, snide, and colorful portrait of Las Vegas, Thompson also erased the man who helped tell the tale. And that's what this episode is about, how Thompson capitalized on a fantastical version of Vegas and his friend to promote the enduring representation of Las Vegas as Sin City. So what did he leave out? And what do people continue to leave out to espouse this fever dream fantasy of Vegas as a vice vacation? I'm Brent Holmes, and you're listening to Spectacle Las Vegas. Have you ever felt like escaping to
1: your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that. Trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies.
0: Let's start by getting a lay of the land here. Late 60s and early 70s Las Vegas, around the time Thompson was writing what would become Fear and Loathing, the mob era is coming to an end. It's becoming increasingly sanitized. Big hotel chains coming in. You got Dean Martin at the Riviera, Tony Bennett at Caesar's Palace. Back in those days, there were folks like Wayne Newton and Don Rickles, Liberace ruling the roost in Sin City. All of them showmen with glitzy outfits, sharp barbs, and hundreds of shows under their belts. To Thompson, with his Hawaiian shirts and a briefcase full of pharmaceuticals, it's a psychedelic retro romp. And in that era, you know, you had Can Evil jump in the fountains. You had, you know, Elvis sort of still doing, you know, sort of the tail end of his white jumpsuit phase. I'm Scott Dickensheets. I'm currently the features editor of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Scott's been a journalist in the Las Vegas area for over 35 years. He moved to Las Vegas when he was nine, and he's talking to us from his office, surrounded by stacks of books. Behind him is a portrait of Thompson. Reading that book in high school, living in the burbs of Vegas, it was definitive. I remember um, at least one guy coming to school wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a white bucket hat. Scott says the guy was carrying a satchel full of grapefruits, which is a reference only Thompson fans would understand. But anyways... Thompson became both a parody and an icon of Vegas, which is, of course, so Vegas. And to get under the hood a bit, we need to know why Hunter S. Thompson chose Vegas to set Fear and Loathing. To understand that, we need to talk to Zach.
2: My name is Zach Barron. I'm the senior staff writer at GQ magazine. In 2011, I wrote an article on the 40th anniversary of the publication of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas.
0: Zach went about trying to discover the origins of Fear and Loathing.
2: I went to Las Vegas and in a kind of misguided attempt to do, I'm not even sure at this point, retrace his steps, write about the American dream in Las Vegas. So uh, that's what I did. What would become Fear and
0: Loathing, the book, started as what Thompson described as an investigation into the American dream, using Vegas as a template.
2: So Fear and Loathing, the book, is a mashup of like three failed projects. There was a Sports Illustrated assignment to cover a desert race. There was a Rolling Stone assignment to cover basically a drug convention from law enforcement. And then there was a book that he had sold, Hunter Thompson had sold, about the American dream to his publisher. So he kind of has these three things that aren't working. And he combines them into one thing where he's like, ah, you know what? Yeah, let me get my
0: typewriter out here and my cigarette holder. Light one of those things up. You know what? Maybe I got something here.
2: The race is sort of the same story as the district attorney convention as it is this pursuit of the American dream. And that's how you get fear and loathing in Las Vegas.
0: So fear and loathing, you could say, was reaching towards some pretty big themes in American culture at the time. The hippies, the civil rights movement, the anti-war protests all gave the younger generation a sense that a window of opportunity had been open. Some went so far as to see it as a revolution. Thompson might not have been part of that movement, but he was certainly a fly on the wall.
2: Like Didion's The White Album, or basically everything that Pynchon wrote, is a book about what went wrong, basically. Because these guys either were, I mean, Thompson and Didion were both actually pretty conservative, but these guys were writing about and often traveling with the 60s counterculture.
0: Thompson saw an opportunity to string together a story about a society in decline. Thompson was a writer who, like Didion and Pynchon, chronicled the counterculture, which of course extended to hippies, to drug culture and fringe movements. And when he goes out to Vegas, the country is at this pivotal moment.
2: And the 60s counterculture, it felt like they were gonna win. It was like, our fellow human is beautiful. Human potential is great. We're on the right side of this and everything's gonna get better. And then Nixon gets elected and the whole door gets slammed on all of this. The ideology
0: of the 60s social movements was on the ropes. Nixon was just icing on the cake.
2: This brief parentheses of light, which is what Pension calls it, I always love that phrase, it's just extinguished. It's, it's put out. And Hunter Thompson has this amazing riff in the book about how this is what we believed. And now, you know, if you stand at the right high point in Vegas, you can see where the wave sort of crested. And fell back. And he effectively locates like the end of this hippie succeeds dream in 1971, Las Vegas.
0: And it's true. The story could have taken place anywhere, but it makes a lot of sense that it happened in Vegas.
2: Well, as Hunter Thompson writes, in Vegas they kill the weak. You know? People are not looking out for each other. People are are absolutely taking advantage of each other at every instance. And so it was this sort of like baldly naked place where the sort of Nixon's America prevailed, right? The, the greed, the wanton cruelty, all were sort of pervasive and just visible on the surface. Not hidden, not uh, somewhere else. It was just like, walk down the strip and you would see it. Vegas is this kind of sad,
0: washed-up place, and that's how Thompson portrays it in the book and how it's ultimately portrayed in the film, too.
1: This was Bob Hoopster, Frank Sinatra's. Spiro Agnes, the place fairly reeked of high-grade formica and plastic palm trees. Clearly, a high-class refuge for big spenders.
0: It's a creative work that's pretty hipster. It reminds me of the cool kids in high school that did everything I did, but ironically, and I couldn't understand what the difference was. Like, if you're wearing a bucket hat, you're wearing a bucket hat. There's this feeling that Thompson reveled in his cruel jabs, shadowboxing with Vegas for entertainment value.
1: The Circus is what the whole hip world would be doing Saturday night if the Nazis had won the war. This was the Sixth Reich.
0: And it's this combination of counterculture window-gazing, existential post-hippie dread, and Nixon-era set to the tune of Viva Las Vegas well, the Dead Kennedys version of Viva Las Vegas, that makes the film a cult classic and the book a smashing success. Thompson was already an accomplished author at this point, but Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas catapulted his career. But you know, we're not gonna wrap things up in a bow here on Spectacle. There's another side to the story of Fear and Loathing, a far more complex story than just a writer striking gold. It's a story that says a lot more about the author and the work and Las Vegas than meets the eye. At the heart of Fear and Loathing, the novel are the characters Raoul Duke and his friend, Dr. Gonzo. But Thompson didn't create those characters in a vacuum. Duke is Thompson. The real-life Dr. Gonzo was a friend of Thompson's, a man named Oscar Acosta. They'd spend time together in Las Vegas when he was researching the book. Thompson liked to record himself. Sometimes he did it almost obsessively long journal-esque recordings of what was going on, stream of consciousness thoughts like a captain's log, a super weird one. And while Acosta and Thompson were traveling together, he recorded hours of their conversations. Ultimately, these conversations directly informed what would become the novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The tapes from Acosta and Thompson's travels would later be known as the Gonzo Tapes, as in Dr. Gonzo, Acosta's character in the book.
2: And it, well, while taking a piss there, it struck me what's, what's going on
0: here. Where I find these tapes fascinating. There's so much going on. Phones ringing, music, background chatter. I feel like I'm in the sweaty, drug-filled room with them.
2: Well, what with us? Uh, the assignment. Any, any no man thing. did it? Well, yeah, well, I, I just found out what it is by then. Anybody that is, in, that is in search of the American dream needs a lawyer, a doctor, and a bodyguard. Because there's no other way to even look for it without that sort of, that sort of guidance. Wow, counseling.
0: Amazing. As we'll talk about later, Acosta suits a couple of those roles. I like thinking of him as Thompson's counselor. That's fun.
2: The doctor mainly for pills. illegal drugs, And a credit card.
0: It does... Really feel like this real-time journal.
2: It is now eleven thirty a.m. Moby Dick is pulling away from Building Nine. Oh fuck! I forgot my sunglasses. I have to buy some more. So right. We are going out again in search of the American Dream. We have get to find it.
0: When you delve into the real-life reporting of the story, you learn Thompson left out some key parts, basically from the get-go.
1: This is a chronology as far as I understand it.
0: Philip Rodriguez is a documentary filmmaker who spent years looking into the relationship between Acosta and Thompson. Initially, Thompson and Acosta were going to Vegas on this Sports Illustrated assignment. Thompson was gonna write photo captions for a photo essay on the Mint 400, A Race in the Desert. Acosta was coming along with him because on the ride, they had the privacy to discuss the murder of Chicano journalist Ruben Salazar. Acosta had actually asked Thompson to come out to report on it, knowing that Thompson had a big national platform after the release of his Hell's Angels book.
1: Specifically, a journalist from the New York Times, Mexican-American, who was the interpreter of the Chicano movement and the Chicano revolution for L.A. Times audiences and for KMEX television, Spanish television audiences, the news director. And he's a reporter and a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. This guy's killed under mysterious circumstances by a Los Angeles County sheriff. W. Oscar is up in arms and Oscar insists something nefarious is taking place. And he, Oscar, doesn't have access to the national media, but he's met Hunter. He knows Hunter.
0: Acosta and Thompson stay in touch through letters for the most part. And Acosta is insistent that Thompson explore the case of Ruben Salazar. Thompson eventually does look into it.
1: And writes really what is possibly one of Thompson's finest bit of writing. It's called uh, Strange Rumblings in Oxlan, which is a chronicle of the killing of Ruben Salazar. This the, the reporter in question. things are really heavy. He submits it, Rolling Stone publishes, important piece.
0: Kevin E.G. Perry is a writer who also explored the relationship between Acosta and Thompson.
3: Fear and living in Las Vegas has one of the most sort of famous opening lines in literature. Uh, we were somewhere around Barcelona on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. And so right from that opening line, you have this idea that this is a drug-fueled, wild escapade from these kind of uh, outlaw rebels. But in fact, uh, when they were driving out to Vegas that first time, they were really deep in conversation about a criminal case that um, Oscar was involved in, uh, which was the death of Ruben Salazar in Los Angeles.
0: For Acosta, Salazar was more than a slain Chicano journalist. He was a comrade, a brother in the movement. They're having this real dialogue in the car about this tragedy in the world of activism. But Thompson's drive in the book? They're hallucinating about bats. I mean, I guess that's more entertaining. Ruben Salazar was a, a, a
3: famous uh, Chicano journalist who was killed in this kind of bizarre um, way. He was killed by a tear gas shell that had been fired into a bar. General consensus is the police couldn't have known he was in there. And it wasn't an intentional assassination, but it is still obviously an example of police brutality and police violence leading to an, the death of an innocent person. So so yeah, so the reality of their trip out to Vegas was uh, was that they weren't, actually high on all these drugs that he describes in the book um, and that they were kind of debating this kind of thorny legal issue and uh, more than just a legal issue, a kind of civil rights issue for for the Chicano movement in, in Los Angeles.
0: So going to Vegas would accomplish two things. It would give him and his friend some privacy, but it would also give him the time to do research for his book.
1: Hunter has an opportunity or pitches something. It's a convoluted story about the American dream decides Las Vegas is the place to go to do the reporting on the American dream where it the American soul, recruits Oscar, and they leave from East L.A., from a hotel in East L.A. where Hunter had been staying, and they drive, make the journey to, to Vegas. And the intention was that they would both collaborate on this book about the American dream.
0: Collaborate is a key word there. That's a pretty big departure from what you read in the book, and see later in the film, where they're like strung out on drugs, Thompson thinks he sees bats, they pick up a hitchhiker. In actuality, it was a much more high-minded drive, albeit they were probably on drugs, let's be real. Much of the book is a fictionalized account of what actually did go down. Like, they did go to the circus circus, They did cover that National District Attorney Association's conference on narcotics and dangerous drugs. Although they left pretty quickly because being around that many cops started to freak them out. And when they did interviews with folks in town about the American dream, Acosta was asking the questions alongside Thompson. In many ways, he was a co-reporter.
2: What is the American dream? Where is it?
1: But you know. the street, sidewalk interviews. So you probably heard the tapes and they, they set about tape record themselves and tape record them interviewing people, kind of documentary style, uh, very taste style. Uh, stewardesses and or rather, you know, uh, waitresses and, and the man on the street interviews, trying to find uh, this story. Ultimately, Nothing's really happening.
2: We're looking for the American dream. We were told that it was somewhere in this area, but. The
4: American dream? Yeah, the American dream.
1: And go to paradise.
2: <laughs> is that it? Well, we're here looking for it because uh, they, they sent us out here all the way from uh, San Francisco to look for it. That's why they gave us that white Cadillac there to, to figure that we could catch up with it on that. But, uh, hey, Lou, you
4: know what the American dream is?
0: What is that? Acosta has to go back to LA, and Thompson? writes what would become his masterpiece. Hunter kind of, after the Vegas
3: trips, he, he kind of locked himself away in a hotel room and, and pulled the story together. And as I say, it's, it's, a, it's such a cleverly constructed um, a piece of writing that I think probably Oscar's feelings probably were not uppermost in his mind when he was writing the book. And we can look back now and say, well, he was being a bad out friend because he didn't consider those things.
0: If you were on Twitter in 2021, you might have heard the phrase bad art friend bandied about. I should probably explain
3: what bad art friend is to begin with. Bad art friend was a phrase that comes from a New York Times piece last year written by Robert Kolka, which is about a feud between two writers, Sonia Larson and Dawn Dorland. Uh, And specifically, one of the sort of most contentious parts of the article was the idea that uh, Sonia Larson had created a kind of fictional character based on Dawn Dorland in her short story and had used specific language that Dawn had used in a Facebook post. And so it became this issue of whether writers, fiction writers, are able to kind of use words that other people have used in the real
0: world and take it over uh, and put it into their story. Long story short, in this 2021 New York Times article, you are forced to reckon with this ethical conundrum. A writer pulls quote-unquote inspiration from the life of someone she knows. And that person, who is also a writer, isn't super happy when they read it. The story made you question, who's the bad art friend? Is it Sonia who pulled from a personal story Don shared with her? Or was it Don, who Sonia said couldn't accept the realities of their relationship? It sparked endless conversations online about who has the right to tell your story and about intent, which, after some digging around Facebook messages, felt intentionally malicious. It also brought up the question of transparency. Do you tell the person? If you do, when?
3: Oscar Zita Acosta, who was a, a Chicano lawyer. Um, and Oscar had a huge influence on the story and on, on the ideas that were in the book, um, particularly in the second half of the book, where everything kind of breaks down and goes off the rails. And it becomes, at some point, just verbatim transcripts of recordings made of Oscar and, and Hunter talking to each other.
0: Some of those recordings were apparently word for word in the book. It caught the attention of a lot of writers and historians since Philip Rodriguez came out with his documentary about Acosta. Journalist Abby Aguirre wrote about it for the New Yorker magazine. Abby says it's important to remember that Thompson had been planning some version of this book for a while, before Acosta's character Dr. Gonzo became such a prominent figure in it.
4: There was some central misunderstanding, but it was, the starting point was Thompson's writing his own book, and Acosta agreed to be a part of it and to help him. It gets even murkier because Thompson was claiming to kind of forge a new form of journalism, right, which where the author was a part of the story. And so what becomes complicated is that Acosta is doing so much of the footwork. Like in one of the documentaries that came out about Hunter a long time ago, and I think the audio is available online, you can hear Acosta narrating. So the the tape recorder's running, and Acosta is narrating. Like he's narrating what they—he's kind of taking audio notes. And then later is conducting the interviews with the people that they encounter. Thompson didn't change this and sort of make it himself conducting the interviews. But he did, like, run that whole part verbatim in the book. And he says, I'm running this whole part verbatim in this book. (laughs) So it's weird because it's all sort of on the surface.
0: They were, of course, frequently drunk and high while performing these hijinks. But it's notable how much of a role Acosta played in these stories.
4: It's very much Acosta doing the narrating and the kind of interviewing of the woman at the diner and everything. It's faithfully represented, but one has to assume that Acosta didn't know he would be in it as much as he was, which is strange because he's doing all the interviews, you know, but he, how could he have known how Thompson was going to frame it, right? My sense is that he was upset when he saw it, and then he was even more upset when it was this phenomenon because it just got worse instead of better. Like <laughs> the wounds got more festering instead of fading with time.
0: The book was obviously bigger than anyone had imagined it would be, which didn't help matters very much. Here's writer Kevin E.G. Perry again. When Oscar read the book,
3: he was shocked by this, and he he was upset. Uh, And he wrote a letter to uh, the editor of Rolling Stone Books, Straight Arrow, a guy called Alan Winsler. And he wrote, my God, Hunter has stolen my soul. He has taken my best lines and has used
0: me. He's wrung me dry for material. Hunter has stolen my soul? Yeesh, doesn't sound like something you just get over. So was Thompson a soul thief or just naive?
3: I think you could say that he was naive if he didn't uh, realize that Oscar might be upset about this. I mean, I wrote a, a travel piece uh, the other day about a trip I did with a friend of mine and I sent it to my friend because I wanted my friend to know what was in the piece and and be aware kind of before it was published. And I don't know if Hunter extended that same privilege to Oscar.
0: He didn't. And there's a paper trail for Thompson's creative work that leads right back to Acosta. Literal recordings. You can compare notes pretty easily. And for Acosta, insult to injury came in the form of his depiction. As Samoan, when his Chicano identity is so core to his life's work, along with kind of the tired tropes you see in the book and later Benicio del Toro's depiction of Acosta or him, he's always sweaty, horny, reckless. He's not only erasing Acosta as co-reporter but also in the eyes of some erasing his culture.
4: All of the sort of things that we would maybe characterize as unsavory about the character, his sort of more coarse side and his drug addiction and all the other things that happen. I can't remember if there are big differences between how he's portrayed in the book and how he's portrayed in the film. I mean I I There's this whole set of scenes with Christina Ricci, I think. But that was very much who Oscar Acosta was.
0: So what Abby's saying here, the more banal depictions of Dr. Gonzo aren't untrue, but it's incomplete and convenient to the narrative that positions Duke as the shamanic hero, albeit twisted and out of his head on drugs.
4: The problem, I think, is that he was reduced to that side. And sort of one dimensional in a way that sort of suited Thompson's story, but omitted all the other things that Acosta was, which was, you know, this prominent attorney, this activist who had handled all of these high profile cases in the Chicano movement in the 60s. Thompson made the character of Dr. Gonzo Samoan. Acosta was obviously Chicano or Mexican American. And I think the way that Thompson kind of treated those two ethnicities as interchangeable, definitely added insult to injury. Thompson wrote later that the reason he did that was to protect Acosta because Acosta was doing all kinds of things in the books that an attorney would get disbarred for, right? So that was Thompson's explanation.
0: Which I'll let you all draw your own conclusions about the rationale. Seems like, given Acosta's involvement from the start of Thompson's reporting, they could have at least had a conversation on what Acosta's role was. Like, give the guy a heads up. You're going to be in here. Also, maybe throw a couple bucks his way. I mean, in many instances, people say he was essentially his fixer, the journalism term for someone that helps you pull your story together. They're the logistics person.
4: I think what was problematic, and what we know Acosta said was problematic, was not the way he was misrepresented, but the way that his personality was very much represented on the page while his actual identity was erased. That was the bone that he picked with Thompson, in any case.
0: Rodriguez and others talk about how he was portrayed in the book and on screen. Drug-addled, sweaty, a mess. Like, how could that guy go to court on Monday? But Zach says we shouldn't try to also stereotype Acosta just because he had a white-collar job. I mean, he was shooting heroin, so...
3: But I think that's probably more to do with our stereotypes of what lawyers are like rather than the reality of Oscar, because uh, Oscar was the sort of person who would go to court having dropped acid in the morning. He was a kind of wild, larger-than-life character. I would argue you're probably seeing more of the truth of him in Hunter's portrayal of him than you are in, in
0: the press conferences, maybe. For all intents and purposes, it doesn't seem that Thompson's intent, if we're using the bad art friend framing, was to erase his friend or take his words. He said that he was trying to protect him. Acosta was a lawyer. He didn't want him disbarred. But Acosta wanted to be identified.
4: The written manuscript didn't get sent to Acosta until a year later. And it had already run in Rolling Stone as a two-part series and was very close to being sent to press as a book. So it was very last minute that they got it to Acosta in the first place. And the only reason they sent it to him is because Random House's lawyers were worried, um, rightfully, about uh, inviting a libel suit from Acosta. So they wanted Acosta to sign a release.
0: Sending Acosta the manuscript didn't make matters much better
4: but it was very last minute. So when he got the manuscript, he was incensed that he had been changed to Samoan. And we know that he made a couple of different demands. One was that his ethnicity be changed to Chicano throughout, and that they run a picture of him and that he be clearly identified on the cover of the book. And Thompson and Random House came back and said, you know truthfully or not, I I can't say, but that it was too late, basically, to change Samoan to Mexican-American. But they did make the concession of running a picture of Acosta on the back flap.
0: It was obviously important to Acosta to be identified, even in fiction, as Chicano. So for that to be denied, it must have been really difficult. But I guess the picture thing is nice? Thanks, guys.
4: And this, by the way, according to Thompson, like, baffled Random House's lawyers because their whole concern at the outset was, we're identifying this guy doing all of this crazy stuff, and he's a lawyer and he could get disbarred. So their worry was that he was too identifiable. And Acosta's, you know, ultimate bone that he picked with them is that he wasn't identified well enough.
0: But I don't know. To me, that makes sense. I mean... Who is Thompson to determine what is and isn't permissible in representing Acosta's identity to the world? Maybe, just maybe, he wanted to be included in that process? Acosta never forgave Thompson, and well, Thompson was pretty pissed too, because Acosta came for him legally.
1: As a lawyer, with access to a great number of other lawyers, civil rights attorneys, fired off a demand letter to Rolling Stone. Random House and the Hunter and said, you're gonna pay for this now You have used me without permission. You have abused my duty and you have mischaracterized uh, me and uh, slandered me. And he came with a full force of the law, something awesome. Hunter never forgave for.
0: Thompson clearly didn't think Acosta's permission was something he needed that his identity was at his disposal. But however you feel about that particular dynamic, it's still odd that Thompson didn't consider Acosta when he was locked away in that hotel room writing the book.
4: There's a lot of correspondence between Thompson and Acosta in, in the last three years. But what Philip found that isn't in any of the Thompson biographies is that in that initial the disagreement, he actually did demand 50% of author royalties.
0: So when Rolling Stone first submitted the manuscript to Acosta a year after they received it, he asked to have equal stake in the royalties. After all, he was part of the story and the reporting.
4: According to a letter that Philip Rodriguez found, the director of the PBS documentary, if that's true, then it's pretty clear that Acosta felt as soon as he saw the manuscript that he deserved co-authorship, which suggests more than just, you know, hurt feelings over his ethnicity being... Changed that he, it implies that he recognized that he had shaped this narrative and shaped Thompson's story and deserved to be credited as a co author. He wasn't credited, he wasn't given 50% of royalties.
0: Acosta eventually gets his own book deal through Rolling Stone, the same editor as Thompson's. For context, Thompson's ran in two parts in Rolling Stone in 71. The book followed in 72. Acosta's first book also came out that same year. So back-to-back. Phillips says the book was well-received at first.
1: And he was a novelty, and he gets photographed by Annie Leibowitz. Really legendary, great photographs. Fat brown guy in a a wife-beater t-shirt. But the books don't sell particularly well. So Oscar's books didn't didn't appeal to white folks much. And I, I hate to say this,
0: but Latinos then... Uh, didn't read much. The book he says became kind of a strange artifact. Unsurprisingly, this was a weight on Acosta,
1: and Oscar, in turn, was very always very bitter about the fact that Hunter had become such a superstar, uh, countercultural hero, and Oscar was a marginal figure uh, at least at that point historically.
0: Acosta may have expected too much from a mostly white publishing world at the time, and even Chicano literary circles didn't take him seriously. His style just didn't fit in any of the boxes they were interested in, but decades later, his books are mainstays in Chicano studies coursework.
1: The kind of books that the Chicano literature that got canonized was, come some version of uh, magic realism, portrayals again of really you know kind of innocent, sweet, easily digestible noble savages. Oscar's books, in turn, were lewd, and sexy and machistic uh, you know certainly aggressive masculinity and it just didn't go down very well in that area it didn't conform to the expectations of those who had elevated that variety of Chicano literature
0: his books didn't sell his mental illness many believe he was likely bipolar was worsening and their relationship really frayed
1: meanwhile Hunter was the toast of the town was the toast of the of the radical chic, everything that Oscar wanted. So they went their separate ways by and large. I think there were a few times when they'd check in or Oscar would ask Hunter for money. Oscar was terribly broke and often extremely depressed and would humiliate himself by asking Hunter for a few bucks. And Hunter would decline, sometimes very angrily. After what you've done to me, how fucking dare you? Who, you know, what's wrong with you?
0: To play devil's advocate, writer Kevin E.G. Perry points out that Thompson did write the book and had a writing career before the book. So it's hard to compare the two in a literary sense, but some could say Thompson exploited that privilege and in turn exploited his friend. What's curious was that Hunter continued to profit off Oscar
1: after Oscar's disappearance and kept writing about him. Oscar was something he could always sell for a few bucks. That's how I
0: see it. Soon after, in 1974, Oscar Acosta would go missing on a trip to Mexico. Thompson, perhaps in a last-ditch effort to make amends with his friend, he hired a private eye to look into it and ended up writing a story about him for Rolling Stone. In terms of defending Hunter,
3: he was a good friend after he disappeared. He, he put a lot of work and time in trying to find out what happened to Oscar, and he also wrote a uh, Another one of his great Rolling Stone pieces was uh, his kind of long eulogy to Oscar after he had disappeared and after uh, he'd heard reports that he'd been killed. I don't think that Hunter ran away from his responsibility. I don't think he ignored this dispute with Oscar. And I think he, in a sense, was perhaps trying to make amends for the slight that he'd given Oscar in Fear and Loathing by investing himself in... Uh, writing about Oscar, and trying to preserve his memory and his legacy of who he actually
0: was. So Thompson clearly felt some guilt about how things went down between him and Acosta.
4: According to everyone who was close to Thompson for the rest of his life, you know, he loved Oscar and felt bad about what had happened to Oscar. But, you know, while Oscar was alive, did not give him more money, did not do any of the things that might have lessened Acosta's resentment towards Thompson at that point.
0: Rodriguez is less effusive about the piece. Banshee screams from Buffalo made really half-assed, unfocused stuff. To him, he was still profiting off of Acosta's story. There's no evidence of them ever discussing the details of Thompson's story, if Acosta would be named or compensated. Who knows what Thompson was thinking? But it was clear, the moment Acosta saw it, he was pissed.
4: It may have been lessened temporarily when he got his own book deal, but it never went away. And there there was obviously some kind of misunderstanding, you know, at the center of their arrangement. Even though Acosta's own son, Marco, when I talked to him, said, you know, he did everything he did willingly, he's a big boy, he was a lawyer. If he had wanted to be a co-author, he could have negotiated the contract, and he didn't, you know, so it was kind of after the fact that he was angry.
0: So what does this tell us about the object of our affection, this lovely, complicated city at the heart of our series? I've got a sort of out-there thought about this one. I think it's interesting to imagine Thompson's novel indulging in a similarly convenient version of Vegas itself, a kind of wasteland museum of America a place where self-indulgent, literary-minded drug addicts could explore a kind of desert bardo of their own making. If Vegas could speak, would it say something like what Acosta said? Would Vegas see Thompson as the bad art friend? Personally, I think Vegas is malleable. Like, maybe it's unfair, but it'll bounce back. It's used to being different things to different people, a fantasy, a blank slate, a shooting gallery for when you're looking for a good time. That's what we love about it. Here's writer Zach Barron again.
2: Dave Hickey has a line, something like, you know, the secret about Las Vegas is that there is no secret, you know, it's all right on the surface.
0: In the 50 plus years since Fear and Loathing was published, everything and nothing has changed. But over the years, there continues to be attempts at portraying the true Americanness of Vegas. (laughs) We stand accused. And one of the most fascinating of those portrayals The film Showgirls unveils a whole other side of this place.
3: I think they were trying to make a sensationalistic, um, real life sort of expose of this sort of seedy, underbelly.
2: That's enough, thank you
3: ladies. I think what they ultimately did was just, you know, they were so out of touch, these two men, and they were so ambitious in a way that they ended up making
0: um, this sort of insane thing. That's next time on Spectacle Las Vegas. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Navani Otero. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Sue. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you from the inside of a suitcase full of drugs.